0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2.
1: Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 2, 15 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Well, peace, be peace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, your sheep, hear and know your voice. And a stranger they will not follow. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Have you ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire? Anybody? Some people, all right. Some, some of the older folk in here might have. All right. Well, it's a very entertaining movie. It's a movie about a, a sports agent who's working for a larger company, and he has had enough. Um, he wants to focus more on uh, quality representation as opposed uh, to quantity, and so he's kind of had it. Uh, the, the movie kind of builds this tension of these bad experiences that he's having. And he goes in and he lets the powers at be, no, um, I want quality over quantity. And a couple days later, after expressing that, he gets fired and loses his job. And so there's this big scene where he is in the middle of his workplace and he gives this impassionate speech to all of these agents and represent uh, company representatives trying to recruit them um, on his team because he's going to start this new agency and he's going to to lead it. And he's like, who's coming with me? And everybody's quiet except for one person. Her name is Dorothy. Dorothy is a divorced single woman, and she's like, I'm with you. And he's like, All right. And they start their own company, and they have uh, one athlete that signs on with them. And eventually, uh, Jerry falls in love with Dorothy and they get married. And the whole story is about how they're trying to get this company, trying uh, to get this new agency off the ground. Now, most of you, even if you hadn't seen the movie, you know Cuba Gooding Jr.'s most famous part in the movie, where he uh, screams, show me the money, show me the money. Jerry's like, what do you want? What do you need to sign with me? Show me the money. A great film, a great film. In fact, the closing scenes of that film is probably top 10 rom-com moments ever, Right? Uh, Jerry is in a little bit of trouble with his new uh, wife. He has put the business um, above his relationship and is becoming healthy, and she is hosting a divorced uh, uh, care group for women in her home, and he knocks on the door, and you may remember that scene, and if not, don't worry, because I'm about to relive it for you. (laughs) Comes in, hello, hello. I'm looking for my wife. a woman says, wait, okay, okay, just wait. Then he walks into this room. A bunch of women are sitting on the floor, sitting on the couch, all looking at him in this really tense moment. He says, hey, if this is where it has to happen, then this is where it has to happen. I'm not letting you get rid of me. How about that? This used to be my specialty, you know? I was good in the living room. They'd send me in there and... I'd do it alone, and now I just. But tonight, our little project, our little company had a big night. A very, very, very big night. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't nearly close to being in the same vicinity as complete because I couldn't share it with you. I couldn't hear your voice or laugh about it with you. I My wife, I miss my wife. We live in a cynical world, cynical world, and we work in a business of tough competitors. I love you, you. Complete me. And I just, and then Dorothy interrupts him, shut up, shut up. You had me at, oh. You had me at hello. And the world has not been right since. We all have just been messed up ever since. Tom said those words I love you. You, you complete me. This week we're back in the book of Genesis. We're in this book and we're going to look at the theme of sacred singleness today. And I actually want to wrestle with, for two weeks, this notion of someone completing you. Is Jerry right? Can another person complete you? Can another person make you whole? And this is a tough tension for Christians. On the one hand, we believe that the love of Christ is sufficient. And on the other hand... Mostly all of us have experienced this crisis of the soul where our soul aches to be affirmed and loved and to belong to someone else. And then we look at the book of Genesis and we see that God throughout the creation narrative over and over after he creates, he says, and it was good, but then we see in Genesis chapter 2 that God pronounces something not good, and this is before the fall. And what he pronounces as not good is that it is not good for man to be alone. What does that mean? Is this a, a declaration that those who are not married, as afterwards God institutes marriage, creates Eve, pulls her uh, from Adam? Does this mean that those who are not married are somehow incomplete? Somehow unformed? And to answer these questions, we're going to look at three questions today that's going to kind of shape our our sermon, our outline. And the three questions are this. First, what does it mean when God said that man shouldn't be alone? And this is important because how we shape this question uh, really shapes how we experience uh, the gospel. Two, should churches see singleness as a secondary state? And are we singles, second class citizens or are single second class citizens? Third, how should those who are single and lonely find comfort in Christ? How should those who are single and lonely find comfort in Christ? And what I want to do for the next two weeks is in looking at Genesis chapter two, I want to really dive into the sacredness of singleness. And we want to follow that up with two sermons about the sacredness of marriage. But oftentimes we skip to the sacredness of marriage without really pondering the question, what does it mean to be single? I mean, Adam was not single for a very long time, the way that I read the creation narrative. It was on the same day that Eve was created, but he was single for some time within that day. (laughs) So what does that mean or not mean? As we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 25, we want to set the conflict, uh, The con. uh, what's it called? The context, yes. My active skills have thrown me off. In verse 15, he says, the Lord God, we're going to be in for a good sermon, long sermon, interesting dynamic here. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. So we see that God creates the garden. And he almost creates this divine sanctuary for Adam. And then he gently places Adam in the midst of uh, this divine sanctuary. And he gives Adam two things. One is an invitation and the other is instruction. The invitation to eat of any tree in the garden and the instruction, uh, but one, and the instruction is to stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about a little more about that next week. And he tells them, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, there will be an experience of death. And then in verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. What does it mean when God says it is not good for man to be alone? Well, we understand that God does create a helper for Uh, Adam. And by helper, it simply means a a companion, one who complimented him. It's not a term that word helper or helpmeet, as we see in some translations that denotes strength or weakness, but whether one who, who compliments him. Does God mean that singleness is not good and that every person should pursue marriage? If this is what the text means, then what about those who are single and who have a desire to be married but can't find the right person? Their circumstances won't allow it. But what about those who have same-sex gay attractions who are remaining faithful to Jesus through a life of celibacy? What does this mean for them? Let's remember the context of Genesis chapter 1. The author gives us what happens on the sixth day when man and woman woman is created by God. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the retelling of the story, but from a, a different angle. In Genesis 1, we learn that God created Adam and Eve and gave him an assignment. That assignment was to be fruitful and multiply, that is to reproduce and to fill the earth with fellow image bearers. And second, we see this cultural mandate to rule over it, to subdue it, to cultivate, to create. Essentially, this is a mandate to create culture and for the glory of God. So we know that God's design for Adam and for Eve and for mankind is to procreate, as well as to shape, to subdue, to cultivate. So when it says that it is not good for man to be alone, part of what is being pronounced is that man cannot fulfill this cultural mandate and fill the earth and cultivate the earth by himself. All the other animals are male and female. They can do that. They can multiply, but not man. I also think that it's important for us to acknowledge that, that God also calls Adam and Eve to become one flesh, and part of the way that God created mankind is for intimacy, for emotional intimacy, relational intimacy and physical intimacy. But that still brings us to the question: Did Eve complete? Adam, And I want to encourage you and let you know that, no, Eve did not complete Adam. That Jerry is actually wrong. Dorothy could not complete him, but Dorothy could complement him. No person other than Jesus Christ can complete you. What makes a person complete is union with Christ, Christ and Christ alone. You go home and you read Ephesians chapter one, it's an incredible passage. And in Ephesians chapter one, it talks about those who have essentially been made alive in Christ Jesus by the grace of God through faith in God. And it's just this amazing passage that's all focusing on union with Christ, what it means to be in Christ. And Paul is letting the church at Ephesus know that both Jews and Gentiles are complete in him that both are fully accepted and can live a life that is full as a result of being united to Jesus. Paul says that we have every spiritual blessing in him. Everything that we need for success on this side of heaven is found in Christ. You see Peter saying the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three through four. He says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need For living a godly life, we have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellency. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us a great and precious promise. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. By his divine power. God has given us everything we need for a godly life. Does a single person need another person to be complete? To live a godly life? And Peter's answer is no. When we believe, whether single or married, that another person can or will complete us, We are taking a good gift, a relational gift, the gift of someone else, and we are making them the ultimate gift, which essentially is idolatry. Another person can compliment you, but they can never complete you. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 through 5, God gives the law to Moses, these Ten Commandments, and he says this, "'I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt.'" out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or the earth below or the waters underneath. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. To look to any person or anything as the ultimate thing, the thing that you need most is idolatry. And we may not physically bow to them, but to bow to them in our heart to believe that this person's approval, satisfaction with me or fulfillment that they bring me is what completes me is idolatry. So if you believe that life only has meaning if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with you, then that idea is what is sitting in the throne of your heart and not Jesus. If you believe that life only has worth if one person is happy with you, that's idolatry. If you believe that what you need to truly be satisfied in life is to have children or to have your children love and adore you, then that's idolatry. And God's invitation to all of us, no matter our state, our relationship status, is to make sure that God is at the center of our heart, that our affections is on him, and that we believe that he and he alone can bring us the ultimate satisfaction. And one day he will completely fulfill us, even though on this side of heaven, we all will have aches and pains that feel like we are partially complete. And the reason why God is to be worshiped and worshiped alone is it's twofold. One, because he is our creator. And two, as Christians, he and he alone delivered us out of Egypt. He and he alone rescued us from the courts of death. Listen to me. Only the love of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit will fill you. And you won't. None of us will be completely full filled until we are glorified. This week, I was talking through the sermon with a, a close single friend of mine who reminded me of a book that we recently uh, went together as a church earlier in the year, Sam Alberry's excellent book, Seven Myths of Singleness. And in that book, Sam discusses his friend who speaks of this these kind of overwhelming moments as a faithful Christian, um, but who is single, um, who who feels overwhelmed with, with loneliness and, and with grief as a result of being single. And he calls these moments his kitchen floor moments, moments that he describes uh, crying on the kitchen floor because the experience of being alone and not having someone uh, to call your own in a romantic uh, relationship is so painful. And I begin to think like, you know, is that idolatry? To be found on a kitchen floor aching because of relational loneliness is that idolatry. To be crying and weeping uncontrollably because you desire to be married. And my answer uh, as in thinking through this is not necessarily. It's not necessarily idolatry to lament and to weep and to yearn, and to desire to be married. To be married is good. To desire marriage is a good desire. It really is. It can be a holy longing. But when we make that our ultimate thing, when we live as if that is what is going to satisfy us, that is what is going to give us peace, that is what defines us, then it becomes idolatry. Idolatry is not desiring a good thing. Idolatry is making that the ultimate thing. And how do you know when that's going from weeping and just mourning and lamenting to idolatry? We know that, like with anything else, that a good thing has become the ultimate thing when we are willing to sin to get the thing that God has not given us. Or when that thing controls our affections so much that we determine our heart. If God does not give me fill in a the blank, then I am going to walk away from him. But to mourn, to be sad if you're single because that ache has not been solved yet is not, is not necessarily sinful. In fact, I would argue that you're, you're a big brother in heaven. When you're on that kitchen floor having that emotional yearning and longing is spiritually beside you, weeping with you, saying over you, blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be filled. Listen, a single person, just like any person, who is missing something that they want, can be content on this side of heaven. And for some of you here today, it probably feels like that is elusive or that is a lie because you have such deep yearnings to be married and you feel a certain way because it hasn't happened yet. But I want to let you know that you can learn to be content and that it is a process. And how do we know that it's possible to be content on this side of, of marriage? Well, for one, the two people who we look to the most in the Bible and who shape who we are and the way we walk out our, our Christian faith, were both single. Jesus, your savior, your big brother, your mediator, your advocate was a single man. He did not marry. The person whom God is shaping you to be like conforming you into his image knows the ache of singleness. He knows what it's like to have a disappointing day and at the end of the day to go to it and lay down in an empty bed. He knows what it's like to want to celebrate a great moment and to be able to come to someone and, and share what just happened and at the end of the day, not have that person to help double his joy as he goes into his hut or his house or some other room alone. He knows what it's like. And he knows what it's like to, to face temptation as a single person. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were without sin. And I would argue that Jesus's temptation was heavier than any of our temptation. And the reason I would argue that is because Jesus knows the full weight of temptation because while under temptation he never not once gave in whereas most of us when we're tempted in a particular area over and over there are sometimes that we partially give in or that we have given in but Jesus out of love for you though it was a very real temptation and ache bore it so that one day he could bear the cross for you so that when you fall You don't have to go into despair or guilt or shame, but you can come to your great high priest with boldness, knowing that he sees you, that he loves you, that he forgives you. You can hear his voice, Zephaniah 3, with loud shouts singing over you. Jesus was able to resist temptation was able to be faithful in what God had given him because he had learned obedience. He had learned to hear the father's affirmation and to allow that to define him. Not his Jewish cultural norms, which was as a Jewish cultural norm was that marriage was expected and to not be married was, was often seen as, as a curse. But rather than allow that to define him, his father's voice defined him. He came to fully experience the height, width, breadth, and length of God's love. You say, yeah, but that's Jesus. and Jesus is God. All right. What about Paul? Paul wasn't God. And if you think he was, holler at one of your pastors here and let them show you that he wasn't God. Paul was a sinner. He was not the fourth member of the Trinity. He was a good writer, hecker of a writer. Peter says, ah, eh, he was okay. Sometimes I couldn't understand what he was saying, right? But they had a little beef going on, didn't they? <laughs> but Paul was, man, he was he was human. And yet at the end of his life, he concluded that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, he Learns to be content so much so that he is able to say this to his audience and and which would have been shocking for a Jewish man to say. And for other Jewish people to hear as well as Gentiles, I wish that all people were as I am single, but each has his gift from God. One person has this gift singleness and another has that being married. He comes to the place, and says, yo, I wish everybody was in the state that I'm in. I wish that everybody would be able to live a single life. And he goes on in uh, that chapter to explain that he wishes that was the case so that everyone could have undivided devotion and affections towards Jesus. But he came to find his completion in Christ. And by the way, when Paul uses the word gift, he doesn't mean superhuman ability. The gift of singles, this is not the superhuman ability where someone is just able to be single. I think that what Paul uses gift, as Tim Keller says in his writing, he always used the word gift to mean an ability that God gives to build other people up. That if you find yourself, due to circumstance or choice, still single, that it is a gift because God wants to use it and can use it to build others up. Paul is then not speaking of some kind of stress-free state. Rather, he's speaking of the freedom the singleness uh, the singles have to concentrate on ministry in ways that married people can't. And it's very likely that Paul struggled with emotion, with his emotions too as he was single. But he learned rather than making that the center of his life, to make serving Christ and his people. So our next question, and I'll make this quick, is should churches see singleness as a secondary state and are single second-class citizens? And the answer to that unequivocally is no. The state of singleness is God's design for some people's lives for his glory. In fact, many people uh, will live a... Good significant part of their life single, not just those who have never been married, but some people experience divorce. Some people experience their spouse passing. Yeah. In fact, today we have with us a dear sister in the audience whose spouse died this week. She came to 9 a.m. service to serve in Sojourn Kids, and she came this morning. She's sitting here in our services. Mr. Jerry passed away this week and I was like, saw this morning, what are you you doing here? Are you okay? She says, this is where I need to be. This is where I need to be. All of us one day will experience singleness as we will. In heaven, Jesus says, no one will be married. (laughs) And so if this is a secondary state, then it seems that Jesus will make sure everyone is married in heaven, but that's not the case. If you go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's clear that Paul's teaching to the church at Corinth is counterculture and is countercultural to the old covenant. Because with the old covenant, singleness was avoided by most. But in the new covenant, singleness, Paul is teaching, is advantageous for many and he's actually encouraging Christians, as I said, to be to pursue singleness because it's good. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3 through 5, we read shocking verses. Isaiah writes this, The Lord will surely separate me from his people and let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Eunuch is a person who is uh, not given to marriage um, and not... Uh, And celibate as a result of either choice or circumstance. He says, For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And I'm not pointing this out, by the way, to convince you if you're here and you desire to be married. To, some, to turn your affections away from that desire. I'm simply a- answering that second question. Is, is being a single person in the church like second class? And I just want to show you from the Bible that that is not second class, that the New Covenant and the New Testament teaches that that is actually um, something that is, is good and beautiful and devout, as good and beautiful, as devout as marriage. And that one day, as Isaiah uh, points to, that in the house of the Lord, there are monuments built to those who choose a path of singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And those people have received a name that is better than sons or daughters. Think about the weightiness of that statement. Those who give a marriage and kids, either by choice or circumstances for the cause of the gospel of Christ, will be celebrated in heaven. And I just want to encourage you singles here who, with Isaiah's word, he says, let not the single person say, behold, I'm a dry tree. You are not a dry tree. Personally, I think the church must help our single single brothers and sisters by making sure that we are not inadvertently as well as overtly sending signals to them, saying that they are dry trees. And I'm not talking to, to singles right now. I'm talking to the church, to those who are, are married, to those in leadership positions like myself, to, to those who shape, help shape the, the culture of the church. We must make sure we are de-idolizing marriage. I didn't say dishonoring. Hebrews chapter 13, 4 says that marriage should be honored by all should all honor marriage. We should de-idolize it though. Churches and communities of churches can idolize marriage by teaching and making it seem as if being married is the capstone to spiritual maturity. By making people feel that there's this special club Called the, the marriage club. And if you're not in that club, you have not yet arrived. You don't really belong. So how do we as a church, a sojourn in Midtown, de-idolize marriage? We de-idolize marriage by teaching the sacredness of singleness. And it starts with me and your, your, your pastors doing a better job of doing that. I don't think I've done a great job in leading us that way. We de-idolize marriage by having singles lead within the church and make sure that we are empowering singles to lead. We de-idolize marriage by valuing the diversity of friendships and making sure our tables as married couples are not simply open up to other married couples, but to our single brothers and sisters in Christ. We de-idolize marriage by calling out unhealthy attitudes about singleness we're in a community group and we hear somebody say something to a single person or that's just out of whack, like, well, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life. (laughs) We don't put the burden on that person to stand up and to say, that's baloney. We stop and say, that's whack. When we hear somebody say, you know, the reason you're not married is just because you're just so picky, <laughs> we stand up and say, no, that's not cool. When we hear someone say, before you can marry someone wonderful, oh my goodness, the Lord has to make you into someone wonderful. They're <laughs> like, what? No, I'm telling you, after 15 years of pastor, This might get me in trouble. But after 15 years of pastoring, I'm convinced, and I know for a fact, that married people are not married because they're mature. (laughs) Some married people are like, amen. If that's the first time you ever amen in my sermon, don't do that. Putting your spouse on blast like that. You're like, hallelujah. Somebody catching the Holy Ghost. (laughs) I know you preaching now. No, put your hand down. Get quiet. (laughs) God did not send you someone because you were mature. And a person is not single because necessarily because they're immature. And we need as a body to call that out. I love what Paige Brown says. And how she balances this kind of act of trust and longing. She says, let's face it, singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs. She says, but I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. And I may never have another date because God is so good to me. gospel balance. Third, how should those who are single and lonely find comfort in Christ? Before I dive into this point, I just want to make it. I'm going to send out an article to you all just uh, on loneliness in general. That was an excellent article written by a pastor friend of mine named Jeremy Linneman, part of the Harbor Network. But he shows research that shows that, man, loneliness is... In the words of uh, one former, former uh, general uh, surgeon, uh, loneliness is an epidemic. Like everybody's lonely. And what's funny is those in general, the loneliest age is those who are 18 to 22, especially when compared to those who are 72 and up, which is so interesting. But everybody's lonely. It's not just single people who are lonely. I am a happily married Man, and I believe my wife would say she's happily married, right, boo? No pressure at all. all right. <laughs> but marriage doesn't like solve loneliness, right? And and there's times when I'm lonely because I am putting my wife in. And rather than treat her as a good gift, as my ultimate gift, and there's not enough approval, there's not enough pursuing, there's not enough questioning, there's not enough presence that she can give me because I'm pulling from her what should be pulled from vertically. But loneliness is not something that will necessarily be solved with someone else. But at the same time, we also want to acknowledge that being married and having a spouse should help with loneliness. And so the question is, what should a single person, whether by choice or by circumstance, do with loneliness? And what should a a single person who is same-sex attracted, who realizes that faithfulness to Jesus can possibly mean uh, never marrying someone, um, especially if they don't marry someone of... the. of the opposite sex, what does that mean for them? How do they are they to deal with loneliness? And I think the Bible speaks to that. In Psalm chapter 68, verse 6, the psalmist says, God sets the lonely in families, He leads out the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. What is God's remedy for loneliness? God's remedy for loneliness is our identity as a church. It's one of our three identities It's family. You say, well, that's obviously what a single person wants is family, but by choice or circumstance, they can't have it. So how does that help? Well, it helps because we see in the New Testament that those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they become a part of his family. God, the father, becomes their father. He becomes their Lord, Savior, and eldest brother, and the people of God become their family. One day when Jesus was teaching, his brothers, his mother and his uh, uh, his sisters and brothers came looking for him to pull him away from a ministry opportunity. And he asked the disciples, he said, who is my mother? Who is my my brother? Who are my sisters? Is it not? The person who does the will of my father. And then in Mark, chapter 10, verse 29 through 29 through, through 30, we read this. From Jesus, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields. For my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields with persecution and eternal life the age to come. Jesus points the lonely uh, to his family, those who have been redeemed. And yes, he points them to eternal life, but I believe that he also is pointing them to the church, the ecclesia. When a person becomes a part of a church, becomes a part of a, a people, and they covet together, they become their family. And at Sojourn, I want to be a place, be a church where people Know that, yes, I will feel at times lonely. Yes, I will have those moments where I am on the kitchen floor crying because I have a desire that is not being met by God. But by the grace of God, though I may feel lonely, I am not alone. Not only is Jesus with me, but his resurrected people are with me. And they sit with me, they talk to me, they they walk with me through these emotions and these feelings and these yearnings and these longings and they're there with me through the thick of it. And I love Henry Nouwen and and his life and and how as a a same-sex attracted uh, man who was a, a, a priest, how he found comfort and consolation in in the body of Christ. And he had relationships when he felt lonely that, and families that he could call in the middle of the night and they would, would love on him and take him in. And I pray that we have more examples like that. And I, I praise God for the examples we do have. I have a list of names that I was going to go off today of, of families who I know take this serious and who open their homes to people. In his book, Washington Waiting, Wesley Hill writes this. I remember praying once with a friend about my loneliness and longing for love. When we had ended our prayers, he reached out his hand and squeezed my shoulder as if to say, I love you and I won't let you go. With that gesture and hundreds of others like it that I have received from my fellow Christians, I have sensed God's love in a way that perhaps I would not be able to in any other way. Listen to this, the remedy for loneliness, if there is such a thing, this side of God's future is to learn over and over again to do this, to feel God's keeping presence embodied in the in human members of the community of faith and the church. Love that hundreds of times over. Hundreds of times over. As a result of the fall, we all experience loneliness. And sometimes it's because we isolate ourselves because of our own sin. And sometimes we experience it because of the sin of others. And sometimes we experience it just because we have an ache that feels unbearable. But in it all, may we remember that we have Christ and we have union with Christ. But not only do we have union with Christ, but we have been united to a body And we need to make sure that we're walking in the gift of that body so that we are a part of this family. So really quickly to my buried brothers and sisters, perhaps Christ's invitation to you is to de-idolize marriage. De-idolize marriage. De-idolize marriage by making space around your kitchen table for single friends, by pursuing them as whole beings, not simply babysitters. By helping bear their burdens... By checking on them unprompted, by encouraging them, by calling out their gifts, by making sure that they know unequivocally that they are valued and that if they never get married, they are whole. Do you know your single friend's fears? Have you sat down to think about the fact that some of them fear, being forgotten about, fear? not receiving a call, fear you moving on and becoming too busy because you, you have a core, a core family that you go to? Do you know the ache that some of them feel going home to an empty room? Do you care enough about them to just to listen? Not to Bible juke. Not to try to fix them. As if we can fix anybody. You can't even fix yourself. You want to fix somebody? I'm gonna set them straight. <laughs> Twenty seconds until bearing their heart about how hard it is to be a single, and you already throwing verses at them. I'm rarely gonna say this, but man, put the Bible down for a minute and bear their burdens, and just listen, and weep, and hug. And affirm their beauty, affirm their dignity, affirm their worth. And then, as the Spirit leads, you speak the truth. When you throw up on someone else, it's not that you don't know the truth. You know Romans eight twenty eight. You don't need somebody to tell you when you got in a car accident that for all things work together for the good in that moment. You need them to be like, "Dang, that's messed up. You just got that car. I'm so sorry." Do you need a ride? <laughs> to my single brothers and sisters, perhaps Christ's invitation for you. i got way more sermon and we got time. Amen. That's why it's going to be part two. <laughs> Somebody's like, you went 50 minutes. I'm like, I know, I went 50 minutes. That's crazy. Single brothers and sisters, perhaps Christ's invitation for you is to de-idolize marriage. You do this simply by resting and rejoicing in your marriage to Christ and by doing the best you can to live out your union with Him. When I was single, there was a period of time where I broke up with someone after realizing that the only reason I was dating that person was because I was afraid to be alone after being called to the floor by some godly man. Did not intend to marry this person, They probably didn't intend to marry me, but we both were just afraid to be alone. And then the Lord gave me two years of not being in a relationship before I met Amber, where I had a pastor disciple me and teach me to worship. Teach me what it looked like to turn off the television, turn off music, and to be silent with the Lord and to give what was in my heart to him. And to enjoy his presence. And it was sloppy. It was messy. I didn't do it perfectly at all. But praise God for Jesus, my advocate, mediator. But I learned what it meant to experience the presence of Jesus. And God's invitation to some of you right now is to learn what it means to enjoy the presence of Jesus. To worship him. Single, God's invitation to you also is to let your married brothers and sisters love you. Tell them how you're doing, but also for you to love your married brothers and sisters. And what I mean is, while it's important that married couples see single couples as whole beings, not simply babysitters, it's also important that single friends don't see their married friends as simply their counselors. Your married friends aren't just there to counsel you. When you come over, you see that as an opportunity just to throw up on them all the time and not to enjoy their presence and let them enjoy your presence when you're healthy, then you're misusing a relationship. And that's not what family is. Family has fun together as well as fight together, as well as counsel each other, amen? And some of our singles, we use married friends to throw up on them and go to them only when we are in a bad place, and that's not healthy either. And serving them may look like babysitting for them because you're a part of the family. I want to invite you to, if you say, Pastor Ma, I want this, I don't have a safe place. Maybe your step is just to play, pray for a safe person, pray for a community. You might find that in community groups, some community groups are powerful, others are pathetic. Go to another community group. Yeah, yeah like this brother been sipping some truth serum. Not alcohol. Just anyway. All right, I'm gonna bring this to a close. My last point is embrace. <laughs> embrace Preaching the gospel to others through your singleness. We've all heard that marriage preaches the gospel. It preaches Christ's sacrificial love for the church. It preaches the church's respectful obedience to Christ. But singleness preaches the gospel too. It preaches the Christian's ultimate identity is found in Christ. And it preaches to the world the sufficiency of Christ. Amy Carmichael has this quote. She says, there is joy, the joy found in nowhere else when we can look up into Christ's face when he says to us, am I enough for thee, my own? With a true yes, Lord, thou art enough. And whether you're single or married, the invitation of the Christian life is to continue to pursue Jesus so that Our hearts can constantly be saying, yes, Lord, thou art enough. And here's here's the difficult thing, is that's a decision you have to make every morning and every day. You have to set your affections on Christ every single morning and every single day because our hearts are prone to wonder, prone to find our satisfaction in anything other than Jesus.